Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 133. What the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians about the oneness and the unity of the church of Jesus Christ is not a new thing in the New Testament, but was always the life that God was giving his people. And Psalm 133 is a celebration of that. You know, the imagery of it might sound strange at times, but these were very uh, common images in the life of God's people for that which was good and beautiful and enjoyable in the life of the covenant people. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 4. Verses 1 through, we're actually going to read through verse 6. We're returning now to our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's been several weeks since we've been here. It was a fitting stopping place. Chapter 3 ended a section. There was very much a sense of transition there. And we begin a new section here in chapter 4. We're going to be slowing down a bit. This morning, just the first three verses. Next week will be just verses Uh, 4 through 6, and then verses 7 through 16 after that. So we're slowing down for this part of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, with our focus being on the first three verses. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we quickly recognize and sense in these words a difficult and challenging calling that you give to your people. And so we pray that as we hear these words, you would help us to hear them as words that point us, first of all, to our Lord Jesus Christ and his work in our midst. And only then, in the context of that good news, as a a challenge that you give to us as your church. Oh, Father, help us to hear, to experience, to enjoy together both of these things, the reality of promise, blessing, gift from you, and also the challenge to live in this way as your gathered people. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes to the kinds of exhortations we just read from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, I want to admit personally that I can be fairly moody about these things. And here, here is what I mean. Even through the process of preparing this sermon, there are times where I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. It's this, it's this fun, enjoyable description of the life of the church. It's positive. It's encouraging. And there were other times where I felt, wow, this is impossible. 
does anyone do this? Can anyone do this? This will simply be, be a burden causing us to despair. I want to tell you I have felt both of those things because both of those uh, feelings, experiences, I'm convinced, are present in this text. That the apostle, that God's word, the Holy Spirit intends for us both to be encouraged and to be challenged. Now, I say that in general terms, but also because at this very moment, it all feels impossible to me. Who could do this? Who could live this way? I want to read these verses again. Remember, our focus is verses 1 through 3 in particular. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then listen to this description. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Who can do this? Well, one of the keys right now, and this is actually something I neglected in my preparation because I was so eager to get into this text, is we do actually need to remember our context. We have to remember where we have been in Ephesians. In fact, Paul wants us to remember that because what did he say in the very beginning words of this verse? Therefore. All right. Well, what is that therefore following from? We'll go back just a couple verses in chapter 3. Up till this point, Paul has been celebrating the good news of what God is doing in Christ, building his church. That he has broken down the wall of hostility that divided Jews and Gentiles, that divided all those things that would divide people in the culture of the day. And he's celebrating that God is doing this thing of building a new humanity, uniting people in Christ. It is all something God is doing. And all of that leads him to the celebration, we called it the doxology, you might remember from a few weeks ago, beginning at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ah, we just answered our question. Who can do this? How can this ever be? Well, it is because of, and Paul says it's because of, he says therefore, it's because of what he just celebrated. God is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And how is he able to do it? According to the power that is at work within us. So what has he just announced? That there is a power, the Holy Spirit, who is at work within us, among us, as the church. God is the one who is doing this. It's all gospel. It's all the work of Christ. It's all the Spirit. And now he says, all right, let's do this. That is then where we arrive at the exhortation, the challenge of Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I want us to look at this in three different ways. All three of these points are really from all three verses. We can't really divide it up, but three different themes or things running through all three of them. First, the theology of the exhortation. There's depth here that I want us to see in how Paul says this. Second, the challenge of the exhortation. Remember, we're situating it in the context of all this good news stuff, but it remains a challenge. It involves our doing. It involves our effort, and we need to hear that challenge. And then third, the promise of the exhortation. We're going to go deep into the theology, we're going to hear it as a challenge, and then conclude with it as a promise. First, the theology. Verse 1, 
I therefore, so connected with all the good news that's been announced of what God is doing in the church, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what, is, what do we mean by the theology here? Well, Paul is saying there's something true of you, something that's been announced, and now you're called to work or walk in a way, in a manner that is worthy of that. So there's already deep theology there. He's not telling you, you know, live this way so you can arrive at something. He's not saying live this way so you can get there one day. He's not saying it's an ideal that's far away, floating in the air, and hopefully you can work your way up to being that. He's saying this is who you are in Christ. Promise. Now walk, live in a way worthy of that. In fact, this is even more embedded in the words he says. He says, worthy of what? The calling to which you have been called. Now, if you just sort of let yourself stay in that phrase, it starts to sound kind of strange, actually. Have you already been called or not? Do you have a calling? He says, a calling to which you have been called. So, on the one hand, you have been called, but you've been called to something that you're not fully at yet. There's also a calling toward which you are called. Well, here we arrive at the same idea again. There is something you are working toward. You need to be better at. You need to grow in. Something that needs to develop within you. But that something is something you already have. You've already been given. And the language Paul uses for that something is of calling, vocation. This is rich language. That each one of you, as part of the church of Jesus Christ, has a calling. Now, some of you might know from church history, this has been a point that for centuries of the church's life was lost. The word calling was only used for the priest. The word calling was only used for the monk, for someone who had a special spiritual task set aside in the church. That was the person who got to say they had a calling. The rest of us, well, I don't know, you, you're never really sure if anything you did mattered. All that mattered is what the priest did up front. Well, the Reformation was the recovery of what Paul says here, that all of you, all of us have a calling, and that that calling is expressed in the very ordinary things of our living. In fact, when Paul says this, he is speaking in the language of creation. This is not some... Um, spiritual thing you are zapped with. Like one day you're going to wake up and somehow the Holy Spirit will have whispered in your ear, here is the special thing you're going to go do. No, this is actually an affirmation of your created calling. That you as a human being have a calling, a purpose, a meaning, and that in Christ that created purpose and meaning is being restored. And that that calling is something that's expressed in all the ordinary things of what it means to be a human. Now, why are we taking the time to go this deep into that language? One of the main things that our culture around us right now is denying is the idea that you start life with a calling. Is the idea that you have a meaning, a purpose, a vocation, a calling that is prior to you, that is outside of you, and that is given to you. We like to talk as though we enter life just as a, a blank slate, as a neutral, well, really a nothing, 
who then has to create something. We have to create our own identity. We have to create our own sense of purpose. And this, is, this has been a way our culture has talked for hundreds of years. We're just now seeing it in all of its crazy expressions. But the initial problem is this. The denial that you have a purpose, a meaning, a calling given to you by your creator. And what Paul here announces is that you, in Christ, what you're being restored to is something that all human beings have. Calling, meaning, purpose. Now, what you are intended to do with that, and what the Reformation in particular recovered in emphasizing this language, is that you ought to, you get to, think of the very ordinary things that God has given you to do. A job, a business, a relationship, a family, a place in a community, interests, things in God's creation that you enjoy, all of those things. And think of them, remember them as having dignity, value. You know that there is the great temptation in the Christian church to think, whose job right here really matters to God? Ah, it's the guy up front, right? It's the minister. That's the part that really... Each of us has a calling. And that calling, though you may feel like the world looks down on it, though you may feel like other Christians think it insignificant, though you may wish you had something that was more obviously meaningful for the kingdom, you have a calling. And that that has dignity and meaning and purpose. And from the moment of your existence... You came into this universe with that calling from your creator. And you get to live toward God in that way. Moreover, that calling, the Apostle Paul says, is a manner of walking. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word walk deeply rich. What book of the Bible are we going to allude to right now? Some of you have got it. This is Proverbs. Walking language is the language of Proverbs. It's the language of Psalm 1. The way of the wicked versus the way of the righteous. Proverbs speaking of there being two ways in the world. There is the way that is wise. There is the way that is foolish. And when the Apostle Paul, growing up with the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament is just the scriptures he grew up with, when he uses the word walk, He's echoing all of that. He's bringing all of that forward. And he's saying there is a way in the world that is wise, that is good, that is with the grain of reality, that is walking with the world as God made it to be. And one of the things God is doing in Christ is giving you that way to walk. It is the way that is wise. Now, as one writer on Ephesians points out, I'll go ahead and mention him, Michael Allen. I, I love his work on this book. He's one of the main um, scholars I'm reading on this. One of the things he points out at this very point is that that actually affects now how we need to hear all the stuff you're waiting to get to about how we're to live together, bearing with each other in love in the church. Because the language of a way to walk, being the language of wisdom means we cannot reduce all of this to legalistic rules. All the stuff we're going to say about our life together, we cannot reduce to a bunch of specific things I can tell you that will just answer it. Because Paul is using the language of Proverbs, which is a language of each of us needs to be wise. 
that if, if I were to simply tell you as a minister, here's what you need to do, what is being hindered is that growing in wisdom. So in a moment, I'm going to be very specific. But you need to hear those specifics as being illustrations of how this wisdom might look. But it's a wisdom that each of us needs to grow in for ourselves. That each of us needs to actually contribute to the life of the church, to the body of Christ together. When Scripture uses that language of walking in the way, it is this idea of wisdom that all of us need to grow in. So, as we now dive into the challenge of this exhortation, we need to hear it with those two elements of theological depth. It is a calling that you've been given, your human dignity affirmed, and it is a calling to walk, to walk in wisdom. And so don't be looking for the rule that will solve everything. Rather, be asking, how can I grow in being wise about this? All right, that's the theology of it. Second, the challenge of the exhortation. So Paul has used this language of calling in a way that affirms the very ordinariness of our lives as human beings restored to God in Christ. But now he, he inflects it. He um, applies this in a particular way. He has a particular concern, a particular part of life where he wants to see this be lived out. So how do we do this? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, now we're arriving at something. Paul has a particular concern as he writes to the church. He says this wisdom that's formed within you needs to result in being, well, how do you do it? With humility and gentleness. These were countercultural words. Greek and Roman culture prized swagger. Greek and Roman culture prized confident assertiveness. Paul is confronting that when he says humility and gentleness. Not putting yourself first. Dying to self. Pouring out yourself for the sake of others. He goes on. Bearing with one another, excuse me, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now one writer argues, and I'm I'm not sure how, how definitively we can say this, though it is appealing. One writer argues that Paul, in a sense here, has in mind two different groups. He has in mind, on the one hand, those who are given to that kind of uh, swagger, bravado, that will sort of create division and conflict, and he's telling them to do this with humility and gentleness. And then he's talking to another group, which is the people who are super annoyed by the ones who aren't being good at having humility and gentleness. All right? And then he says to them, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So, you see what he's doing. He's saying, you all need to get this, humility and gentleness, and you all need to be patient with those who aren't getting it. That there's always going to be things you don't get, and your calling then is to bear with one another and to do so in love. Now, as we read these words, I'm quite confident that all of us, especially after that challenge to grow in wisdom, all of us can be thinking of specific ways this would play out in the life of the church. We're going to talk about that. One thing, though, before we get there. What does this tell us about the church that Paul needs to say these things in the first place? 
If Paul feels the need to tell us to bear with one another in love, what is he assuming about the church? Now, what I'm going to challenge us with here is Paul is actually teaching us something about the church by giving us this exhortation, not simply because of what it tells us to do, but because of what it assumes about the life of God's people. So, I'm going to read these words one more time and be thinking, what is Paul telling us about the church? What is he assuming about the church, teaching us by assuming this exhortation is needed? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Well, what's the first really easy thing we'd say he's assuming? He's assuming we're sinners. Okay. I'm afraid, though, that we want to just say that and then move on. Paul is assuming we're sinners, and he's saying, don't sin against each other. Uh, There is something much more deep and complex than that going on. It's not just a matter of sin. Paul is assuming that the life of the church is going to be difficult. And he's assuming it's going to be difficult, not simply because we are sinners, but because what God is doing in the church is bringing together people who are different from each other. What this exhortation assumes is that the thing God is doing is bringing people together who might not otherwise want to be together. That faith in Christ is sufficient to bring together the church. And if that is being done faithfully, that will result in you being side by side with people you might otherwise not want to be side by side with. Now, congregation of Christ, we don't think of church that way. We think of church, how we want church to be, is to be the people we enjoy being side by side with. We choose a church based on these are the people I feel connection with easily. These are people who are pleasant to be around, easy to be around. And we think of church as being the place where we are seeking out, first of all, easy commonality. And so churches today are segregated along all sorts of lines, demographic lines, interest lines, economic lines, cultural lines, because we're constantly looking for our affinity group. We're constantly looking for those who are like us. But Paul assumes that what the church is, is not that. That it is the bringing together of people who are different. This is perhaps the main way we need to be challenged by what Paul says here. Not just the way we conduct ourselves once we are there, but how we think about what is happening in the first place, what we ought to be desiring, that we ought to be desiring in the life of the church the being together with those who are different from us, where it is clear that the only reason we are together is shared faith in Christ. What are those differences? Well, Paul has spoken of some. He's spoken of bringing bringing Jew and Gentile together in the life of the church. So ethnic, cultural differences, difference of sensibility and background that at the time made it seem impossible to be together, but Christ would bring them together. We ought likewise to expect, to seek out differences of sensibility, differences of disposition, differences of ways we relate to life, and to be embracing that as being why we are here. What other differences? Well, here's a fun one. (laughs) I say fun because it's overwhelming. We just spoke a moment ago about when Paul says to walk, he's echoing the language of Proverbs and of wisdom. 
Well, what's going to happen in the life of the church as we all grow in wisdom? Is we're going to grow in different ways, different areas of wisdom. Some of us are going to grow in one area more than another. And so we are constantly going to have differences in the wisdom judgment calls we make. It is unavoidable. Even if we're growing in the same area, wisdom is delightfully complex. And so we are going to constantly, even in areas we are experiencing shared growth in wisdom, have different judgment calls and how that plays out and how it should look. And to that, Paul says, humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another. Do you see what he's assuming about the life of the church? Or think about our, uh, our uh, New Year sermon text uh, just a few months ago. When Jesus calls his 12 disciples, and he seems to be very purposefully including within the disciples differences. The one we noticed and enjoyed together was Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. The two political polar opposites Jesus includes in his disciples as the foundation for his church. And so we ought to expect, if the church is being faithful, that there would be political differences in the midst of God's people. We ought to be voting in a way that cancels each other's out. At least that would be the picture of the disciples Jesus called. Are we ready to, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another, in fact, more than that, are we ready to seek out church life that makes visible that what Christ does is bring together that which in the world is divided. That what Christ does is unites that which seems impossible. Or are we just after our interest group, our affinity group, what makes it easy? You see what, Paul, what I mean by what Paul is assuming about the church in what he describes here. What his exhortation then says, when he says with humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, is that we need to then embrace all of that. Embrace our differences. What does that mean? Well, for starters, let's talk about it this way. It ought to be heard in our midst a kind of delighting in the people that you find difficult. What ought to be heard in our midst is a kind of taking delight in being in community with people you would not otherwise have chosen. I think sometimes there can be a fair bit of complaining about difficult differences, especially as a church grows. Now, I know there's ways of joking about our differences that really is playfully embracing them. I understand that. Don't hear this in a legalistic way. I'm trying to point toward wisdom. All right? There's all sorts of ways we can poke fun at, joke about differences among us, but we must be careful that the overall story is that we are delighting in, we are embracing, we are, we are um, speaking in a positive way of those things about us that otherwise would be difficult. It means more than that. When Paul says bearing with one another in love, bearing with one another can sound like a sort of like a mere toleration. Like, like all he's telling you is, you need to be okay with those other people being part of the church. But what, how does he say it in a way that won't let you feel it that way? Bearing with one another in love. So that what this results in is actually a being drawn toward each other. 
and actual love for each other. And so this isn't simply that we speak of each other this way, but that we would seek connections in which the way of life that Paul describes here would be expressed. You ought to be seeking connections within the church that will give opportunity to express bearing with one another, showing meekness and gentleness and humility. We are here because of what we have in common in Christ. We are not here because of all the other things we have in common. We seek to structure the life of our church this way. Now sometimes the image that keeps popping into my head when I'm feeling despairing, all right, when I'm feeling like, how is this possible, okay, about the life of the church? Sometimes the church seems like, you know, the 10-year-old who puts a bunch of bugs in the jar and then shakes it just to see what'll happen. Sometimes the church feels like we're all just thrown in together and it's going to be like, whoa, how is this going to go? How, how can we even survive together? But this is, in fact, what God is doing. And it is something that we ought to be embracing optimistically, hopefully, that the differences are themselves good. And so we seek to structure the life of the church in such a way that is constantly jumbling us all together, that is constantly keeping us mixed up, that won't let us split off into our interest groups, whether it be culturally or generationally or however we might think about it. Especially as a church grows, it is so tempting to want to start just providing goods and services for different interest groups in the congregation, and let us just split off and be with the people who are like us. We must fight this. We must resist it, because the vision for the life of the church in Scripture so clearly is that which is different generationally, culturally, in all of these ways, being jumbled in together in one body, one people of God. It also means not just talking this way, not just seeking those connections, but also then, when it is difficult, to be eager, to be humble and patient. We are going to sin against each other. When, if Paul gives the exhortation, bear with each other, what that means is you're going to need to do the bearing with. And what we do is we, when we arrive at the point when we realize we're bearing with so-and-so, that's when we want to be done, right? We go find someone else, something I connect with more easily. No, we have to embrace we have to go with that. We'd say, no, no, no. At that moment where you feel like you're having to bear with someone, that is why you are together. That is what our togetherness is for. We need each other. Now, remember that all of this must be heard in the way of wisdom. It is also a good when you find people who are similar to you in fun ways and friendship forms. That is a good. Don't shy away from that. But that's not what we're talking about. We must also always be maintaining, constantly seeking out connection with those who are different. Both are good. Both are necessary. Finally, the promise of this exhortation. Who feels like we really need a third point right now? All right? That's all difficult. It's all challenging. Paul says it challengingly. We can't soften that. We, can't, we shouldn't want to get away from that. It's all in the context of the gospel. He's announcing what God is doing, what he's doing in Christ. He wants us to hear it that way. But it's also a challenge. But it's also a promise. Three different ways in our text. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain Ah, now that is a joyful word. He's actually telling you this thing I'm describing, you already have it. 
It is yours in Christ. It's who you are. And what you get to do is maintain it. You get to express it. You get to show it. You get to walk in a way consistent with it. That is, he's promising it's yours. And then says, live out of it. He speaks of it as a calling you already have, the calling to which you have been called. Now, I know earlier we went deep into the theology of that, but what's one of the main things that's saying? It's promise. You have this calling. This this life being described, yes, it's difficult, but it is good. It is a good thing that God is giving, and it's the thing that he has given as his gift. And then perhaps most importantly, the clarity of this being promise is the language of love and and peace. The language in verse 2, bearing with one another in love, and the language then of verse 3, in the bond of peace. Love and peace, both of these so definitively, scripturally, are gifts. They are of God. They are from God. They are something that God works in our midst by the Spirit. So that all the language Paul uses for this, as challenging as it is, is actually Paul announcing, proclaiming, declaring to you, this is what God is doing. This is what God has done in Christ. So as you hear the description, especially as you seek to go in your own way of wisdom to sort this out, and you can just immediately see all the difficult complexities, be encouraged. God is the one giving this life. I know some of us, for example, when we hear this language of unity and the oneness of the church, we're going to talk about it a lot more next Sunday. When we hear what Paul says about the unity and oneness and fellowship of the church, and then we look around at the broader church and we see denominations and divisions and differences all over the place, this can cause a kind of anxiety. I know, maybe not for all of us, but for some of us in particular, that reality can be fearful because we hear all this stuff about oneness and we look around and we say, well, then why are we in all these separate groups, separate denominations? And that anxiety has often led people down foolish paths to then try to create unity by creating one big institutional structure. And what you always end up with when we do that is a whole bunch of nothing because we always have to end up giving up all the other commitments of the Christian faith just to try to find one thing or something like God is nice that we can all say and then we can show unity. Over against that anxiety, we must hear. Brothers and sisters, we must hear what God's word says in this text as the announcement of something that is real. That the unity of the church in Christ just is real. It is a promise. However much we fail to show it, however much our divisions contradict it, Paul announces it as something that is real. And he announces it as a reality to a church that needed to be told to bear with one another. Meaning, there were no good old days. It has always been the case that the church has dealt with differences, divisions, conflicts, and it is Precisely because of that temptation to fear that the promise is announced that you are maintaining something that already is, that is real. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, this is so hard pastorally. I want us to feel really challenged to be more convicted, more purposeful about living this way. 
But I also want you to feel the joy, the confidence, the hopefulness of the way Paul says this, that this just is what God is doing and who the church is. Now, that doesn't mean we say, okay, he says it's real, so now who cares? No, what did he say? Walk in a manner worthy of it. So we should want to find ways to show our unity visibly. We should want to find ways to work together with other churches, other denominations, other traditions that could make clear what we do have in common. But that is not creating the unity. The unity is a promised reality in Christ. And we're simply called to live in a way that shows it. Now, I've been speaking of that promise, that encouragement, in terms of the big things of the universal church. But you see, everything we just said matters for how you feel about this group right here. Everything I just said about how we think about the universal church matters for how you think about this challenge of living together in this fellowship. I know that for some of us, this can feel existential. We have our dreams, how we'd love for the church to be, how we'd love for friendships to be, how we'd love for community to be, and real life seems to constantly contradict it. Instead, we're constantly bearing with one another. Why can't it just be easy for once? And in that moment, in that moment, there is the temptation. But what is the temptation in that moment for you? To give up? to despair. For some in that moment when the life of the church seems to contradict the dream of how it seems like it should be, there's the temptation to despair of all of it. How many of us have been encouraged in our faith by togetherness with other believers? Yes? Well, all right. But then what happens when the togetherness isn't encouraging? When it doesn't feel the way we want it to? Well, then there's a temptation to lose all of that tethering. There's a temptation to say, well, maybe I was just doing this because it was good and it's not good after all, so then what's the point to any of it? You see how that anxiety, that darkness can go. Sometimes it's simply practical. I've watched people do it many times to just sit back and quit trying. Right? So you'll be here. You'll be here, but disengage. Brothers and sisters, Hear the joyful, glad, good news of the unity of the church as a promised reality in Christ. That this is who you are. And that what we get to do in all sorts of imperfect ways, what we are devoted to doing, what we are committed to doing, what we are called to do, is to then seek expressions of that to seek to live that, to seek to show that for each other. Maybe that's the shift that needs to happen. It's not for us. It's for each other that we seek to live all of that. But we live it out of the confidence that Paul simply announces this is who you are. And so, brothers and sisters, it's, 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 it's very similar to God announces that you are forgiven, definitive, and yet you don't always live it perfectly. And there are times where falling into sin can then feel fearful. You can then question, am I really following Christ? If I were to do, since I do this, I, I seem enslaved by this. Am I really a Christian? What is the answer? It's not then to try to work harder, do better, to then prove something. It is to look to what God has promised you in Christ. 
And it's the same thing for the life of the church. At that moment where you feel tempted to pull away, tempted to despair, tempted to say it's all impossible, the answer is not, first of all, double down on working harder. The answer is, believe what God has promised you in Christ. That there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That there is one body, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one calling that all of us have been given. And that what we are doing in this place, however much it seems imperfect, however much it falls short of what we desire, what we are doing in this place is demonstrating in our own small way that spiritual reality. You don't get to decide whether it's happening or not. It's happening. It's what God is doing. He promises it. And then we then are called to live as part of that, to live as part of what God is doing. All of that then, as it encourages each other toward God's promised future, that language of verse 1 again, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ultimately, that to, that to which you've been called, the calling that's out there in a sense, is ultimately the new creation. What the church will be perfectly, people from every tribe and tongue and nation gather together in God's presence. That's what it's pointing toward. Indeed, the language of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We always forget how Jewish the New Testament is. What is peace? If you grew up speaking Hebrew, as Paul did, what is peace? That's not just the absence of conflict. Peace is shalom wholeness, life as it is meant to be. It's ultimately the life of the new creation, created life as it's meant to be. And what Paul here then says, look, I know it's hard, I know it's challenging, but what he says is, you get to live in the bond of shalom, the bond of new creation life in the present. That then is why you must pour yourself into this. Because you have a brother or a sister right here, right now, who's tempted to take her eyes off of that. You have a brother or sister right now, all of us in some way, tempted to stop living toward that. And so what we are called to do in seeking to live in this way that Paul describes is to show each other glimpses of it to remind us of what we are living toward. The promise of God in Christ, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the promise of the oneness of the church of Jesus Christ. We often find this promise difficult to receive. We have so many things in our lives right now, in our life together as a church, that seems to us to contradict the promise. And so we pray that you would turn our eyes toward that promise, toward Christ, and that you would then, by your Spirit, in a way that surpasses anything, all that we could think or desire or do, create this life among us as the body of Christ. We seek this with humility, but also with confidence, for you have promised it. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.